Hello, and welcome to the Biotech 2050 podcast. Biotech 2050 is a think tank chronicling the disruptions changing the biotech industry over the next several decades. You can check out our website at biotech2050.com or on your favorite podcast listening platform. I'm Rahul Chaturvedi, co-founder of this podcast and today's host. I'm also the founder and CEO of Clora. Clora is a talent marketplace that enables biotechs to build on-demand teams while keeping fixed costs low. You can check us out at Clora.com. I'm excited to welcome Ivana Magovchevich Liebisch, President and CEO at Vigil Neuroscience. Thanks so much for joining us today, Ivana. Thank you. Looking forward to it. Great. So Ivana, to set the table for the conversation, would love if you could talk to us about how you initially got interested in biotech, the arc of your career, and how you got to where you are today. Absolutely. Thank you for the opportunity. So maybe I'll start at the beginning. I was actually born in Serbia, in Belgrade which when I was born used to be Yugoslavia during Tito's regime. And I had the privilege to grow up in a household where it was all about education. My parents used to say to me all the time, education is something people cannot take away from you. So I think from very early in my life, they taught me about focus and tenacity. My mom was an accomplished chemical engineer and my father was a successful businessman. Very early on in my childhood, actually, my father decided to move us to Portugal because he had a vision and understood that probably the country we were living in was not the best opportunity for his children. So we moved to Portugal and actually went to American high school there. And that was probably a first example of my resilience and tenacity. I walked into ninth grade and barely spoke English and was told on the first day that actually I was going to be moved to eighth grade because of my knowledge of the English language was not up to par. And I understand that I went up to the principal's office and had a brief conversation. Not sure what happened there, but he opened his door and said, she's ready for ninth grade. So that is really how I ended up in the U.S. And before, maybe just to mention where the love of science comes in, During my time in the American high school, I had an amazing biology teacher and really got excited about science. And when I applied to go to schools and actually got a full scholarship to come to the U.S., I knew that that was where I wanted to focus. When my father dropped me off with two suitcases, he said, good luck. Don't mess this up because I can't afford it. That's how my career here started. And I really recognized during my PhD, which I did at Harvard, that what I was really interested in was how do we translate science into medicines and how can we really drive the science to help patients? And this is why I kind of decided that I didn't want to stay in academia, that I really wanted to move more to the company side of things and really see that translation happen. And I took a little bit of unconventional route to get there. At least it was unconventional when I did it in the early 90s. I went from academia actually to do a law degree. I got a degree as an IP attorney. And that's how I ultimately ended up in the industry and had the privilege of actually starting my career in rare disease space where I really got the rare disease bug and really got that connectivity to the patients and understand what it means to help patients who have no medicines to help them, no treatments available to them. So my first company was Transperiodic Therapies. Actually, I was there when we filed the first BLA for the drug called Raplagal. 
And then I had the privilege to work at Diax for many years, actually, for 12 years and saw the drug from the lab all the way to the market. And I always say the highlight of my career was having the patients we were trying to serve, which was the HE community, come and hug us and tell us we changed their lives. And that's really kind of what drives me and what I want to continue to accomplish. From that Diax, I went into bigger organizations because I thought it would be important to understand how larger companies operate, right? I had a lot of experience on the smaller company side. And so I decided to spend some time in much bigger companies. I actually spent time at Teva and then at Ibsen in strategy and BD roles. And although I enjoyed those and had many successes, I realized that what I really missed was the small and agile and ability to kind of change course quickly as needed. And we all know that is needed a lot in our industry and really wanted to start something from scratch and really build a company that really focused on the people and the mission and the culture, because I think that what really matters are the people and the culture. Ultimately, you know, we do always need to have good science, but if you don't have the right people and the right culture, you're not going to be successful. And so that was kind of the impetus for getting to where I am today, which was partnering with Atlas to start Vigil about three years ago. Wonderful. Thank you, Ivana, for, for sharing that. I noticed that you also sat on a handful of boards and continue to sit on a handful of boards. I'm curious to hear your perspective on how sitting on boards of other companies has informed how you operate and how you run Vigil. Thank you for bringing that up. That's a very good point. It's been tremendously helpful and useful to have that experience from the other side and really understand what drives the boards, what the boards get worried about or excited about. Also recognizing that managing a board is a job in itself. So transparency, good communication, no surprises, really coming to the board with the right recommendations that are well thought through was really helpful. As I became, obviously, I've been in executive roles for a long time. I've interacted with the boards on many different levels, but it was extremely helpful when I became the CEO to kind of remember those rules around managing boards and managing expectations. So it's been extremely helpful. I also noticed that you've been at some larger companies. You mentioned Teva, Ibsen, and so on. I'm curious, when you first stepped into the role as CEO at Vigil, what were some of the non-obvious learnings when you first took that CEO job that perhaps your prior experiences hadn't prepared you for, but you quickly needed to educate yourself on particular topics or even revisions of mental models on how you approach management and such? All of my experiences were extremely helpful for my ultimate role. So I think what was most useful to me is that I played many different roles in different companies and having the opportunity to experience different things. So I came into the industry as a patent attorney. I was a general counsel. Then I was a chief business officer, ultimately chief operating officer, and, you know, raised money on the public side at IX. And then also having that opportunity in larger companies to realize the importance of connecting the dots and not creating silos, and also the importance of getting buy-in from people early on in the process. I think that all contributed to making me feel that I was 
prepared. I mean, you're never prepared, but feeling that it was the right time for me to take the role. I think one of the learnings which I believed in when I came in, but now I really believe in it because I see it real time, is that really it is about the people and the culture, that the most valuable assets of the company are actually the people and the culture. And because I had the ability to build a team from scratch, I really, really believe in that because Vigil is a very young company. We are only three years old. We were started in the middle of COVID in July of 2020. We are now a clinical stage company. We've IPO'd. We've raised over $315 million. We're bringing another asset into the clinic. And this is during some extremely challenging times, not just for our industry, but for the world as well. And I can tell you that happened because of the team we have and the culture that we created that believe we got to do everything with a sense of urgency because the patients we are trying to help We've given them hope, right, which is a huge privilege, but also a huge responsibility. So that strong why and then the culture where we say we celebrate failures. And what I mean by that is that we're very direct and transparent. We talk about what our challenges are. We let the data lead us. And the advantage we have is when you do that, you have the ability to change course and the ability to change course quickly and adjust. And I think that's really proven to be extremely helpful and obviously got us to the point where we are today. Over the last three years, you all have certainly achieved a lot. You mentioned how much capital you've raised and so on, and also grown the team. I'm curious how you have been ensuring that you're evolving as the company grows, you know, like the needs or the demands on a CEO when you're 10, 15 people are very different than when it becomes a 60, 70 person company. And curious how you've seen your own role evolve and perhaps what advice you would provide others that are listening to make sure that you are doing what the company needs you to do as the company evolves. That's a great question. And one thing I also want to mention, which is really important, is that you have the diversity of thought around the table. That's critical. Mm -hmm. So not just the right team, but also that diversity. And that's been extremely important for us. We have an extremely diverse organization, actually. I have a lot of females on the leadership team. You know, my CFO, Jennifer Zolkowski, been instrumental in our success. Our chief people officer, Brenda Dwayne, who's really helped me put the team together. And then also on our board, we actually, I'm very pleased to say, we have 60% female representation on our board, which I think is higher than at a Russell 3000 or Modern 25 by far. So I think that diversity of thought is critical and it's critical to continue to have that as you grow. I also think that, you know, when you start a company, you're in it, you're in everything. You kind of know it all, right? And you have to be able to step away. And as you hire people, I always say the number one role of the CEO is to hire an A-plus team and enable them to execute by setting the right culture, right? Mm -hmm. So having that ability to empower them and let them do their jobs and step away is also important. I think the other thing that's really important as you continue to grow is not to lose that decisiveness. It is critical, I think, for success of the small companies because the only advantage we have over large companies is that ability to move quickly. And sometimes you have to make those decisions, not necessarily on a full set of information, not perfect mm. information. And sometimes people, especially when you get bigger, it gets harder 
to keep that agility and that decisiveness. And I think that's really critical. Thanks for sharing. Before we jump into the work that you're now pursuing at Pidgeot, I'd love to get your perspective on neurology as a whole in terms of therapeutic area, where you think that unmet needs still exist, and then specifically around precision-based neurology and what are the challenges that we should all be aware of, but also obviously the opportunity that precision-based neurology can provide. I think it's a very exciting time for neuroscience and neurodegeneration today. We're finally having some successes, which is wonderful to see. We strongly believe that microglia biology is that new frontier of CNS drug discovery. And that is why Vigil is microglia-focused therapeutics company. We also believe that in order to have successes in neurodegeneration, we're going to have to replicate what we did in oncology, which is have that precision-based approach and really focus on connecting the genetics to what we're trying to do. So we at Vigil really have that precision-based approach and we really focus on diseases where there's a very strong genetic mechanistic and biochemical association to microglia dysfunction. And that's how we chose our first indication, which is called ALSB, which stands for Adult Onset Leucoencephalopathy with Axonospiroids and Pigmented Glia, because we believe that that reduces the downstream translational risk, but it also allows us to get to that clinical proof of concept really quickly. And I think that's where the need is because trying to, for example, solve Alzheimer's disease and say that there is one solution that's going to fit all in this very heterogeneous disease, I don't think it's the right approach. You know, our approach, we have a drug also that's going into the clinic for Alzheimer's, but again, we have a precision-based approach. So we are focusing on genetically defined subpopulations of Alzheimer's disease and we really believe that's where the future is going to take us. Just like in oncology, where we genotype, I think that's our future for neurodegenerative diseases as well, especially in Alzheimer's, where we're going to genotype, really try to understand what these subsets are, and then try to tailor the medication to help that particular patient population. But really exciting times. I mean, I couldn't ask to be in a better space we, for the longest time, did not have anything, had a lot of failures. And all of a sudden, you know, there's light at the end of the tunnel. And as I said, I think finally people are discovering microglia, recognizing their importance. They're the sentinel cells of the brain immune system. They're the ones that are responsible for the health and the well-being of the brain. That's actually where the name vigil comes from, because it comes from vigilance of microglia, right? The ones that watch over that. Right. And so we are really, really excited with what the future holds, not just for Vigil, but just for the space as a whole. Wonderful. And Ivan, I'm curious to hear your thoughts around the space and what you think has changed in terms of, as you mentioned, there were lots of failures along the way, but what's changed now that from your perspective where there are now some successes and it's elevating, let's say, all these other companies that are also working in neuroscience? So success always means that there's going to be money. And when there is funding, that means that people can work on innovative approaches. And so that's definitely something that's very good right now. As I said, I think people are also starting to think there was the focus on amyloid, right? And beta amyloid and removal. And now people are starting to think, what else? What is next? Now we've cracked that nut. What else is out there? So there is a lot more discussion about new targets. 
And so we are working on one of those, that's TREM2. TREM2 is the key sensor of damage in the brain. It responds to all kinds of damage sensors and it activates microglia from their kind of homeostatic state to disease-associated microglial dams that are the ones that are neuroprotective. So I think there is appetite to put money and effort behind novel approaches, which is what always moves the field forward. Now, I would love to understand, you mentioned culture, and you've worked at very large companies as well as early stage companies. Curious to hear your approach to building culture at Vigil and what's been working so well to be so productive in a short period of time. I always say culture starts at the top. You got to not just talk to talk, but walk to walk, right? I think, you know, what's been really important for us is that sense of the why. Why is so strong, right? It's that better tomorrow for patients with neurodegenerative diseases and having the ability to connect everybody to that why is really what drives all of us every day through good days, but also through challenging days. I think the transparency and communication is critical. You know, I believe that a company is a network of communications. And so making sure that everybody understands, I always say, understand what the bus looks like. This is the bus. And then you have the decision to make whether you want to be on that bus or not. But if you decide to be on the bus, we're all driving in the same direction. Really important. I always say that cover-up is worse than any crime. So that idea of celebrating failures, making sure that we're really letting the science drive us. And then the other thing I always say is truth to power. And again, you have to create the right environment for people to feel comfortable to do that. And I think if you really establish that kind of culture, then you can overcome anything. We also have a can-do attitude at Vigil. So we really believe in problem solving. We tend to like to take the challenges on and then get in a room and figure out how can we do it, not why we cannot do it. I think, again, allowed us to be very creative and agile and be able to change course, especially during COVID. And we were manufacturing during COVID. And you can imagine what the challenges were in biological manufacturing during COVID. And we were able to overcome all of them and deliver the drug on time because of that approach of not just saying, okay, it's COVID, we can't do it. Material is not available. The timelines are stretched. It was more like, how can we do it? What do we need to do to make this happen? So that's the kind of environment we have. But, you know, keeping the patient at the front of everything we do has also been critical. So we work in a rare disease space. We engage with patients a lot. We just recently had an ALSB patient day where actually brought patients and caregivers into the company to really share what it is to live with this disease, because that's where everybody in the company then can relate to why they're doing what they're doing. And on the topic of culture and patient centricity, we as a sector have long talked about patient centricity. But I think there are some interesting new models that companies are applying. I'm curious, given the inherent risk that is involved in everything we do in drug development, particularly for those folks that are newer to biotech and experience a failure, but have this strong sense of the why, how do you thread that needle where folks aren't too discouraged and with failures, because those will happen, particularly for those that are new, right? Like we've all been through many, many, many failures, unfortunately. I'm sure 
But what encouragement are you able to provide those folks that perhaps haven't seen as many failures to continue to motivate and inspire? Again, what I said is like being transparent and over communicate and explain whatever plan we put in place is probably not the plan we're going to execute on. And that there's going to be twists and turns. And as long as we give it our best and think solution oriented, we will get to the answer. Now, what the answer is going to be, we have no control over. But what we have a control over is that we've done everything we can, right? So that was what I said before, is that it's a real privilege to work in rare disease space, but it's also a huge responsibility. So as long as we feel that we are always keeping patient in the center of everything we do, and we are making decisions that are driven by what is right for the patients, that is what matters. And yes, some things are not going to work. But that kind of experience then is going to help you to then do possibly something else for another patient population. So it's that kind of communication and understanding that, yeah, things might not work, but you're getting tremendous experience by going through these processes and understanding and challenging yourself. So that's how we deal with it. I mean, so far, you know, obviously we didn't have something not work out, but we've had other challenges along the way. I think the other thing that you mentioned, you know, that we work differently today. And that's very true. Like when we started Vigil, my higher number five, I think, was a patient advocacy person. And I had a lot of people who thought I was crazy because I'd really had just started a company. And I said, no, because we are really trying to build something from the bottom up. We really need to build these relationships, really understand what it is that patients care about. We actually have a patient advisory group as well. So when we put our natural history study in place, when we put our phase two, we actually make sure that that patient voice is always heard, which is really, really important. Yeah. And Ivana, just an extension of that thought, patient centricity is certainly a very interesting topic nowadays. And you've seen a lot in your career and there's been lots of innovation in our sector over the years, whether it's, you know, the evolution of new modalities or precision approach to therapeutics, as we've talked about, or even, you know, the application of software now to address longstanding inefficiencies. I'm curious to hear your thoughts on whether there are still inefficiencies that you feel are rate limiting across the biotech ecosystem that perhaps aren't being addressed still? There's always insufficiencies, right? We're always driving to do things better. As you can imagine, clinical trials are very challenging to execute, especially when you have patients. It might be very challenging for them to get to sites, get through all the testing that they need to get. So anything that we continue to think about how we make that easier for patients make it more accessible to at-home type of things, I think it's going to continue to help us as we try to make sure that we can actually execute on these trials and generate the data. I do think also that, you know, making sure that we don't create companies that get too big too fast and really make sure that we are working in the most efficient way and using our capital in the most efficient way, especially in the current environment. I call it, don't get ahead of your skis and really think through what are the critical skill sets that you need to have in order to manage, right? Because I always say consultants are only as good as people who managed. So you do have to have that critical skill set. But then beyond that, really thinking about what it is that you really need to have in-house, 
as your full-time versus what can you bring in for those ebbs and flows of our business as well. Great. Well, Ivana, before we let you run, I wanted to ask you to reflect for a minute. And given all that you've now experienced and achieved across your career, what's one piece of advice you wish you could provide your younger self, knowing all that you now know? This is something that I continue to work even today and will probably work until I'm not longer able to work is, you know, the ability to really listen from nothing. And what I mean by that is really walking into the room and being able to leave all your preconceived notions, all what I call your wall of bricks outside of the room and come in and create the space for unexpected to happen. I think that's something that I work on every day. And I wish that I worked on it even more when I was younger. Well, Ivana, thank you so much for joining us today. Congrats on all you've achieved at Vigil and wishing you and your team continued success. Thank you, Raul. It was a real pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this episode of Biotech 2050. This episode is hosted by me, Rahul Chaturvedi. If you enjoyed this episode of Biotech 2050, please subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. Also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at biotech2050pod. Again, that's biotech2050pod. Until next time.